Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. What is going on, everybody? Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts Podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander, and this is a brand new episode of the podcast here on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. How about that? We are starting off the new year with episode 89 of the podcast, and it is a big one. We have got two big topics to talk about this week, both involving... An institution that starts with U.S. We're talking about the U.S. House. We're talking about the speaker vote that's going on. And what you could expect for the next two years in the House. Because that has been on the minds of many these last couple days, last week or so. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about U.S. soccer. Because there's also been some drama, chaos, controversy, all that stuff with U.S. soccer. And Greg Berhalter and one of the players who we talked about a lot during our World Cup podcast because he wasn't playing. Now we know more information about all that, so we're going to talk about it here on this podcast coming up in just a little bit. But before we get to our big topics for this week, I just wanted to remind you all that if you like the Zaders Facts podcast, if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition, episode 89, remember to click the follow button on this podcast, download this episode, episode 89. That's how I figure out if you're listening to the podcast or not, if you actually download it. Rate and review the podcast, then go on all our socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, I'm on all those, at Zaders Facts, that is Zader with a Z, and most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. Spread the facts! Xander's Facts Podcast. Spread all the facts about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts, which, if you don't know, is our weekend newsletter. You should sign up. It is free. Check out Xander's Facts on YouTube. This episode is going to be available on YouTube. You should check that out. Our last episode, episode 88, was our most watched YouTube video ever. Yay! So you should go check that out. Our Xander's Facts link tree, which has all the Xander's Facts links that you need, including... For the Xander's Facts website, xandersfacts.com, which houses the Xander's Facts shop, where you can buy some nice Xander's Facts gear. So you should go do that exclusively at xandersfacts.com. So, with my weekly shilling out of the way, we are getting to our two big topics this week because you all need facts. You've all got questions, and I've got answers that contain facts for you all. We are talking about the house. And we are talking about U.S. soccer. So let's talk about Congress first, the U.S. House specifically, and the speaker vote. That was the big thing going around Washington last week, was the U.S. House was not electing a speaker, which they kind of need to do. And it only took over three days, 15 rounds of voting, and lots of backroom deal-making. But finally, just finally, the U.S. House was able to elect the next speaker of the House on Friday night, late Friday night. Actually, I think technically it was Saturday. That's how late Friday night it was. It took a lot for Kevin McCarthy, the Republican, to finally be able to grasp the Speaker's gavel. And while it took a lot of hard work to happen, that does not mean that the hard work for Kevin McCarthy and his allies stops. So why exactly did the Speaker vote take so long? That's probably a question a lot of y'all have, including myself. And what does it mean for Congress for the next two years? And why does this affect me in any way? I'm going to answer those questions with some facts. Here we go. So let's get to it. As we start off the podcast talking about the House and the Speaker vote that took forever last week. So first off, let's just talk about how the Speaker vote unraveled. And then we'll get to actually how it affects us. Because that's why you all are here, of course. So let's start with last Tuesday. Not Tuesday, January 10th. Tuesday, January 3rd when the 118th Congress convened for the first time. Now, if you'll remember, we talked about this on this podcast. Back in November, the midterm elections happened. Democrats retained their majority in the Senate, but Republicans took majority in the House. It was a slim majority, but they took majority. So Republicans are now the majority party. So they were able to elect a member of their conference for Speaker of the House. The Speaker of the House is the presiding officer of the House and is second in line to the presidency after the vice president. So the obvious nominee for Republicans was Kevin McCarthy, who comes from California. Since 2019, McCarthy has served as the House Minority Leader and the top Republican 
in the House. He took over for Paul Ryan after he decided not to run for Congress in 2018. He was the speaker before that. But the issue with McCarthy, apparently, is that he can't count votes. That's basically why we're in this whole situation. McCarthy knew on Tuesday, January 3rd, that he did not have enough votes to become speaker. So the current makeup of the House is 222 Republicans and 212 Democrats. To elect a speaker, you only need a simple majority, which in this case is 218. And since no Democrats would vote for McCarthy, they instead nominated their own candidate, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. And so because of that, McCarthy could only lose four Republicans on the vote. So it's Tuesday. We are now convening Congress for the first time since December, the last Congress. All these new Congress people are in there. Oh my gosh, they're meeting each other. It's so exciting. And we do the speaker vote, which is the first thing the House has to do, even before inaugurating the new members or any members, because they all serve two-year terms. You have to elect a speaker. So that's the first thing they did. And McCarthy could only lose four votes. Instead, in that first vote, he lost 19. Yikes! 19 Republicans initially voted against them, all of them being from the far right, believing that McCarthy himself has not gone far enough to the right. Now, mind you, Kevin McCarthy is not some sort of moderate. He is a very conservative individual. Like, I'll just give you some examples. Before he became speaker, the pinned tweet on his Twitter account was about a man named Hunter Biden. The link in the Twitter bio of his personal account right now is firepelosi.com, which I didn't know was a website. I mean, this is a man who, just weeks after the January 6th insurrection, 2021, that's now over two years ago, went down to Mar-a-Lago to meet with former president you-know-who, lives at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, and staged a very uncomfortable photo if you've seen it. McCarthy is a very conservative Republican who voted to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, but apparently that is not conservative enough for some members of his own party. So 19 Republicans cast their votes for someone other than McCarthy. So McCarthy ended up with just 203 votes, compared to Hakeem Jeffries, who got all 212 Democratic votes. But because you need a majority... Jeffries was not elected speaker, so we had to go to a second ballot. Because as I said, the House cannot do literally anything else until it elects a speaker. So the only thing that they could do was adjourn, or they could go to a second ballot. So that's what they did. And the vote went the same way there. And then we have a third ballot. And on that third ballot... Another Republican defects from Kevin McCarthy to vote for Jim Jordan. So McCarthy now just has 202 votes. Jordan himself, Jim Jordan is pretty far right, loony, crazy, but he actually supported McCarthy himself. He was nominated, though, by those far right members because there's actually not a limit on who can be nominated. In fact, it's actually possible that someone who does not even serve in the House can serve as speaker, like there is an individual in the Republican conference of the House of Representatives who did vote for Donald Trump for Speaker of the House. You. Congress then adjourned after that third ballot until Wednesday at noon. And so during that time between the third ballot and the fourth ballot, they're negotiating. The allies of Kevin McCarthy, who are a vast majority of the Republican Party in the House, and then those far-right defectors, there's like 20 of them, who are not voting for him. So despite all those, we get to Wednesday, and we have three more ballots. And McCarthy gets just 201 votes this time, because another Republican congresswoman, Victoria Sparts, who was previously a McCarthy vote, only voted present, which is basically a vote for nobody. So McCarthy wasn't able to get anybody on his side. So by this point, there was serious thought about whether McCarthy should continue to run? Or should he step aside to allow someone else to run? Like potentially his number two in the House, Steve Scalise, who is now the House Majority Leader. On the five ballots that took place on Thursday, things still did not get better for McCarthy because he didn't gain any votes 
but his team was still trying to negotiate with his far-right wingers in order to get those votes, because Kevin McCarthy needed them. So, there's an 11th ballot Thursday night, and before the 12th ballot on Friday, news actually seemed to turn in favor of McCarthy, because apparently he had had enough, and it was reported that a breakthrough had been reached and that McCarthy would have the votes. So we do a 12th ballot on Friday, and in that vote, Kevin McCarthy got 213, which was more than Hakeem Jeffries for the first time, but less than he needed to become Speaker. So then we have a 14th ballot on Friday night. We had a 13th ballot, didn't work out either. So a 14th ballot on Friday night. We were told it was a sure thing. McCarthy was 100% sure he had the votes and he would win on the 14th ballot. Well, he got 216 and now two people voted president, including Congressman Matt Gates. Remember the person who I said voted for Trump earlier? He voted president at the end of the vote because he wanted it to be very dramatic because, oh yeah, everybody's paying attention to him, so he's going to use all that attention. It was actually really weird because the Republicans applauded when he did that, when he voted president, even though they actually needed him to vote for McCarthy. So yet again, they couldn't count votes. Are you stupid? And since the total number of votes actually needed goes down when present is voted, only 217 votes were needed. So McCarthy came up one short. And that, ladies and gentlemen, on CNN on a Friday night, on C-SPAN on a Friday night, is when the fireworks began. So now you had a bunch of Republicans who were all sitting around Matt Gates trying to get him to change his vote. Kevin McCarthy came up to where he was sitting to try to get him to change his vote. All to no avail. And it got so tested that one Republican, who is now the Armed Services Chairman, or we believe is going to be the Armed Services Chairman, Mark Rogers, actually lunged at Matt Gates after McCarthy walked away, saying he would be finished and had to be restrained by another Republican congressman. Chill out! And we got to see it all live because of the C-SPAN cameras. By the way, just a little side note here, but we got to see so many more views and angles of the House floor than we normally do because C-SPAN cameras were in control of the cameras in the House. Usually that doesn't happen. Usually when a speaker is elected and a rules package is adopted, then the ruling party takes control of the cameras, and so all we see is this big wide shot, and we see the people speaking. We don't get all these different camera angles from C-SPAN, which was pretty good television. We got to see a congressman lunge at another congressman. We got to see them dealing and negotiating on the House floor. We got to see people's reactions and what they were doing, and Katie Porter, a Democrat, was reading a book that was called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, and we got to see all this stuff, because the C-SPAN's cameras were in control, because they hadn't elected a speaker. And it was awesome. And now they, you know, the Republicans are in charge, and they took it away. But I will say this, because I'm still off topic. Matt Gates actually introduced an amendment that would bring back the C-SPAN cameras. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, you probably know this. Matt Gates and I do not agree on basically anything. But on this, I 100% agree with Matt Gates, We need the C-SPAN cameras back on the house because that was quality television on a Friday night, that's for sure. Spitting the truth. But anyway, the guy had to be restrained and all that happened. So we get to see Kevin McCarthy walking back to his seat and he looks dejected. He looks absolutely terrible. Like at that point, he knew this is basically over. Look at that face. He looks dejected. Look at that. So after all that, there was then a vote to adjourn until Monday so Republicans could figure their crap out. And while that vote was happening, Republicans were still trying to make a deal with Gates and the other Republicans who didn't vote for McCarthy. And so finally, something happened. Finally, Gates said he would vote for McCarthy. And so then we get to see, because of the CB-SPAN cameras, we get to see all of this happening we get to see all the Republicans who originally voted to adjourn, they start racing up and changing their votes. So, because they wanted another ballot, because this was going to happen tonight now. Because now, 
they had the votes. So then, late Friday night, we are moving into Saturday morning by now, we had a 15th ballot. There were no votes against McCarthy, and said six Republicans, including Gates, voted present, which lowered the vote number that McCarthy needed so McCarthy could win with 216 votes, which is what he did. So finally, we elected a speaker. Congratulations. After 15 ballots, which was just the 15th time that a speaker vote had to get a multiple ballots. Remember, we do this every two years. The first in exactly 100 years, 1923, and the longest since 1859 and 1860. The longest speaker vote ever actually went to 133 votes, and that happened in 1855 and 1856. It's a fact. I will also just note that 1860 and 1856, those were not good times for our country. Like, that was basically on the precipice of something really bad happening, if you know your American history. But hope, let's hope that doesn't repeat itself. So, I mean, technically, this was not unprecedented, but it was not typical, and it hadn't happened in 100 years. And remember, in the last Congress, Democrats had the exact same majority. It was 222 to 213. Right now, Democrats have 212 because one of the Democrats passed away and they haven't had the special election yet. So it's 222, 213, really. But Nancy Pelosi didn't need more than one ballot to be reelected as Speaker. I'm just saying. Need some ice for that sick burn? The thing is, though, Kevin McCarthy, like Nancy Pelosi back in 2018 and 2020, had two months from when he knew the Republicans would win the majority in the House up to now. So, like, what was he doing in those two months? How did he not know that he didn't have the votes? That's, like, a basic thing that you need to know when you are leader of the party. Like, if you don't have the votes, you need to find out why you don't and get those votes. That's basically, you can say all you want about Nancy Pelosi, crazy Nancy, she's corrupt, whatever. But there is no doubt that she was one of the most effective speakers we've ever had. She knew how to get votes, and when she didn't have the votes, that bill did not go on the floor for her majority to get embarrassed. Same with... Mitch McConnell in the Senate, except for the Obamacare repeal thing with John McCain with the thumbs down. Say all you want about Mitch McConnell's politics, and I will say a lot, but he is a very effective politician. So not the best start for Kevin McCarthy in trying to be an effective politician, but he was finally able to gain the Speaker's gavel. We were into Saturday morning by now. It had passed midnight on the East Coast. But before that, there had to be a trade-off of the gavel from the Democrats who held the majority in the last Congress. This always happens to the Republicans who gained the majority. Nancy Pelosi is no longer the leader of the House Democrats. She stepped down, and the Democrats picked a new leader. And that is the man I mentioned earlier, Hakeem Jeffries from New York, the first black lawmaker to be the leader of a party in Congress. This is true. So Jeffries had the privilege, privilege of handing off the gavel to McCarthy, but not before he was able to give a rousing, I will say, speech on the House floor. I was watching this take place. It was Saturday morning. It was about 1 a.m. Eastern. I was really tired, so you probably you may not have seen it, but I wanted to play a clip from that speech that you should hear and see if you notice anything about it. Listen. But I also want to make clear that we will never compromise our principles. House Democrats will always put American values over autocracy, benevolence over bigotry, the Constitution over the cult, democracy over demagogues, economic opportunity over extremism, freedom over fascism, governing over gaslighting, hopefulness over hatred, Inclusion over isolation, justice over judicial overreach, knowledge over kangaroo courts, liberty over limitation, maturity over Mar-a-Lago, normalcy over negativity, opportunity over obstruction, people over politics, quality of life issues over QAnon, reason over racism, substance over slander, Triumph over tyranny, understanding over ugliness, voting rights over voter suppression, 
working families over the well-connected, xenial over xenophobia. Yes, we can over you can't do it, and zealous representation over zero-sum confrontation. We will always do the right thing by the American people. That's right. My man went A to Z on them. I mean, you listen to that speech and you think, that man sounds like a Speaker of the House right there. I mean, we'll see if that happens anytime soon. But then McCarthy was handed the Speaker's gavel, waved it around, and outlined the Republicans' objectives over the next two years, which included taking on China, securing the southern border, providing a check to the executive branch, IRS funding, and, quote-unquote, woke education policies. But after the speech, McCarthy made sure to thank one person, a former president, if you will, Donnie Boy, who, of course, was as involved as ever in the process. Because during the period of time that McCarthy was trying to convince Gates to vote for him, Marjorie, who's another Republican congresswoman, you know the other names, was trying to get another one of the defectors to switch to McCarthy. She was trying to hand that House Republican a phone, her phone, that was on a call with a contact that was named DT, of course, for Donald Trump, which we got to see because of the C-SPAN cameras. Oh my gosh, I love the C-SPAN cameras. So, what chaos. And even after almost four days, 15 rounds of voting, Republicans still were not united. For several years, Kevin McCarthy now has tried to suck up to the far right to get their votes. And it's worked to some extent because he got Marjorie's vote pretty easily. But it almost cost him here. And there would be no one other to blame than the Republicans who have allowed the far right to gain steam in the party for many years. All of last week. Who was in the news? It was Boebert. It was Gates. It was Marjorie. It was the far right who are now basically, with this, taking over the Republican Party. I mean, this has basically been an ongoing thing, though, really since the Tea Party gained steam after the 2010 midterms. John Boehner, remember him, he was House Speaker. He quit after 2014. It was like, no, I'm done with this. These people are crazy. And those people don't even hold a candle to what we have now in the House. Like, Trump enabled these people during his presidency, and now they have significant control over the party. So what a headache for Kevin McCarthy. And yet, this only may just be the beginning. Because you may be wondering, how did Kevin McCarthy switch their votes from nay to yay? Good question. So it took a lot of negotiating, as I said, for McCarthy to be able to come speaker. And that meant giving things up to the far right members. So what exactly did he have to give up? Well, what we know is that one thing, pretty major for McCarthy, is something called the motion to vacate. That is a motion made to try and force the Speaker of the House out of that position. So previously, half of House Republicans were needed to make the motion that would trigger that vote, which would need a majority of all House members to pass. McCarthy proposed the threshold lower to five House Republicans, but far-right members wanted it to just be one House Republican, and McCarthy eventually relented. So that means that just one Republican member of the House is needed to trigger a vote to remove the Speaker. So that means that if McCarthy does anything that those members don't like, like, oh my gosh, if he did the evil, evil act of negotiating with Democrats, they could trigger a vote to remove him. It probably wouldn't pass, but it's still a threat. That could prevent things like bipartisan negotiation. Evil! And so those far-right holdouts, most of the members of the very conservative House Freedom Caucus, also gained more seats on committees. Or at least that was what was agreed to with a handshake. We're going to start learning committee assignments on Wednesday, so we're going to figure out what happens there. Also, something big that's going to happen later this year, negotiations over the debt ceiling, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But McCarthy has promised that the House will not pass a budget resolution 
that includes a debt limit increase without spending cuts, which could translate to cuts on things like Social Security and Medicare. Oh my gosh, what? But I've been a Republican and I thought they were going to lower inflation. Well, you should have listened to this podcast because I literally read, what was it, the Commitment to America thing, word by word, and they said they were going to do this, just saying. And there's also going to be a new subcommittee under the House Judiciary Committee that's being created, which will investigate the alleged, quote, weaponization of the FBI, unquote, because these are big issues right here. Among other concessions McCarthy gave to these far-right House Republicans, there's others that we might not even know about. So while it was fun to watch Republicans fight and tussle last week, Democrats were definitely enjoying it, bringing out the popcorn, of course. What came out of it is more power to those on the far right, those who believe that Donnie Boy is their lord and savior and that there's no way he could have lost the 2020 election. Like, last week we were all like, yeah, Lord Boebert, yeah, Matt Gates, you tell those Republicans— but now, these are the people who really love Donnie Boy, do not believe that the 2020 election was fair and that it was stolen for Joe Biden. Like, these people are very bad. And all they were doing, basically, they weren't doing it for principle or what they believe in. They really, they really, you saw it when they caved, they really just wanted to get their name in the news. They want everyone to know about them, and they don't want the government to work. And that's exactly what they were doing. So. There's all the stuff that McCarthy gave up, and that's why we're in the position we are now. But here's the big question for you. You're asking this question, of course. What does it all mean for me and the country and Congress over the next two years? I didn't ask that. Well, as expected, gridlock. There's not going to be a lot that gets through to the White House to be signed into law by the president. I mean, there's a lot of things that pass Congress nearly unanimously that we don't really hear about because we don't pay attention. but. Democrats aren't going to be able to get many of their priorities through the House, and since Democrats have a majority in the Senate, Republicans aren't going to be able to get their priorities through either. So Democrats are still going to be able to confirm judges and administration appointments because they only need confirmation from the Senate, not the House, so they can still do that. But things from bills like infrastructure, voting rights, stuff like that is not going to get through. And those, you know, would be nice, but they're not technically necessary we need to get that done now there are some things though that do need to pass in order to keep the government running you've got a defense bill that funds the military you've got a farm bill which funds agriculture programs and you've got spending legislation but what is already causing the most concern right now is the debt ceiling the debt ceiling if you don't know is the total amount of money the federal government can borrow and if you didn't know the federal government is in a bit of debt. The U.S. debt clock says it's about $31 trillion, and it just keeps growing. That's a lot of numbers. Just a little bit. And so if the U.S. government reaches the debt ceiling with their debt, or the total amount that the government can borrow, then the ceiling needs to be raised in order for the government to keep spending on anything, like defense spending, education, infrastructure, or social security, stuff like that. If it's not raised, the U.S. government cannot pay for anything. This isn't like a government shutdown, which could also happen, where we've had government shutdowns before. We had one under Obama. We had one under Trump. We had two under Clinton. Those are not good, but necessary government functions still run. This would shut down those. It would shut down everything, because we literally would not have any more money. And money's amazing. If we reach the cap and we don't raise it, it would be, and I'm not putting this lightly because it's not a light topic, it would be disastrous. Not just for the U.S. economy, but for the world. The U.S. would default on its debt obligations and would have to make drastic spending cuts. So any kind of money that you get from the government each month, no matter what kind of program it is, whatever, if you get it from the federal government, that's not going to come. And that would bring with it consequences that experts cannot even predict, they say. Not to mention that financial markets around the world, not just Wall Street, around the world would nosedive. That could happen even if we get to the brink, even if we get super close to defaulting because of all the worry. 
And when Republicans and Democrats were negotiating in 2011, this was 12 years ago now, they came really close to reaching that cap. And when that happened, Standard & Poor's downgraded America's AAA credit rating for the first time ever. So this is literally the worst case scenario, and all of our lives would get way much worse. Uh Uh-oh. And that's because Republicans have said they'll let it happen. Because Republicans who initially withheld their support for McCarthy said that it was a non-negotiable in their negotiations that McCarthy be willing to shut down the government rather than raise the debt ceiling. So those Republicans don't really care. But as I told you earlier, they don't really care about governing. They didn't care about not having the government run last week, and that's why they made that whole show. Because, as I said, they're not here to make sure the government doesn't run as intended. And then when it doesn't run as intended, everybody says, why is government sucking? And then they'll say, well, it's the Democrats' fault. They love government, so it's their fault. Even though it's, of course, Republicans who are already threatening this if they don't get their way on cutting programs like Medicare and Social Security, which are pretty popular if you actually look at the numbers. And I saw some Republican on Fox News, I saw this on Twitter or whatever, there's a Republican on Fox News who on Tuesday, the day I'm recording this podcast, said that taxation is theft, which I found pretty rich because doesn't that person get paid their salary from taxes? That was a little interesting. But we actually don't know when exactly we'll reach the ceiling until it actually happens, or we get really close. Experts say it could be July or August, or maybe even if tax revenues are higher than expected, it could be 2024, which, by the way, is now less technically than a year away, 2024. That's crazy. But whenever it comes, Democrats and Republicans in Congress will have to reach a deal, unless there's something else that could happen. There's also talk over whether President Biden could do something if Congress can't hammer out a deal. Because, really, the U.S. is the only country in the world that requires a separate vote on the debt ceiling. Because in basically every other country, it's assumed that money will be borrowed in order to cover the spending. Denmark is actually the only other country that has a debt ceiling, but they've never really gotten close to it. They got somewhat close in 2010, but they just doubled it. So that's not really an issue for them. This is a uniquely American problem. America! The debt ceiling is. And a lot of people, Democrats really, just want to get rid of it. But if we look at it here, there are technically some steps that Biden could take that previous presidents have been unwilling to take. But apparently they could actually be perfectly legal. Technically, there's an existing law that allows the U.S. Treasury Secretary the power to issue platinum coins of any value. So the Treasury Secretary, who's Janet Yellen, could basically issue a platinum coin of like $2 trillion or something like that and deposit it into the Treasury's account at the Federal Reserve and use that to keep the government running until the debt ceiling is raised. Now, that came up during the Obama administration, and they didn't use that idea because they thought of it as too unserious. But apparently, it's technically legal because of a 1997 law that passed Congress. Some also say that Section 4 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution declares the debt ceiling unconstitutional. Here's what it says. It says, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned, unquote. So if Biden invoked the 14th Amendment, it's actually unclear whether anyone would actually have legal standing to sue him. And this is another tactic that the Obama administration decided not to use. But apparently, Biden could, if it really came down to that, which it might, because we're still several months away from any of these scenarios happening or being possible, but it's pretty troubling that we're already talking about this scenario happening in January when it could be July or August or possibly next year when we have to do it. But that's the possibility that we have to face. It could be really bad, unless one of those scenarios happens, or 
Democrats and Republicans just come to a deal. Debatable. Which, I mean, can they do it? Can Republicans negotiate in good faith? Because I can tell you that those 20 or so Republicans that were not voting for Kevin McCarthy weren't really acting in good faith. So could the Republicans act in good faith, or could they just get a couple of them and McCarthy supports it? I don't know. We'll see what happens, because that's a couple months off, but still. That is something to pay attention to. So that's what's up with the House and Republicans. And even though Republicans have the majority in the House, it's slim. And they've already shown that their party is not united. But what is clear is that gridlock has returned to Washington. Because Democrats and Republicans don't agree on many things. And when they control different facets of the government, it means that a lot of things do not get Done. That's what's going to happen over these next two years until the elections next time in November of 2024. So the big things to watch are obviously the government spending and the debt ceiling talks. And also if Republicans keep falling flat on their faces because they did not get off to a good start. I saw somewhere last week a bunch of Republicans were saying that this was a good thing, that we were fighting for the American people and their interests. And I'm like, no, it's really not because... China and Russia and a lot of autocratic countries are looking at this and they're just saying, see, this is democracy for you. It doesn't work. And that's what I'm saying. Republicans are going to try and show that government doesn't work. And then they're going to say the Democrats love government, so it's their fault. Even when they're the ones that are doing it. Anyway, it'll be interesting to watch what happens in the House and in Congress over the next two years. So that's basically topic number one on this podcast. Chaos, controversy, drama. That's really the theme of this podcast because this next thing that I'm talking about has all of those as well. Let's transition over from the U.S. House to our other topic for this week's podcast, U.S. soccer. Ugh. And y'all know I love talking about soccer. Like, just go listen back to the World Cup podcast. But I know you all might be a little drained of the U.S. soccer talk. Sandra, we just talked about it in the World Cup for a whole month. We have to talk about it again. Yes, because this is different. This is not on the field stuff. This is off the field stuff. And it's pretty juicy stuff. And it doesn't matter if you like soccer or not. You're going to like this story. So just keep listening because there is the fact that World Cup is over. Club soccer season has resumed over in Europe, which you should be checking out, by the way. It's pretty good to watch. But there's also been some off the field news regarding U.S. soccer recently. Remember, during the World Cup, When we questioned, I basically said on this podcast, why is the manager, Greg Berhalter, not playing one of his best players, Giorena? Well, now we have a lot more information regarding that situation, and it's not a good look for anybody involved. So I'm going to break down this latest drama surrounding U.S. soccer for you. And yep, it involves Greg Berhalter and Giorena, because it was one of the biggest stories surrounding the World Cup for the U.S., the lack of Gio Reyna on the field. Even though he's only 20 years old, Reyna is already one of the best players for the U.S., and he has the potential to be something great. So it was definitely a surprise when we didn't see him play at all in the U.S.'s first match against Wales for just a few minutes against England, and then not again against Iran, and then for the second half against Netherlands, we were down 2-0. So why hasn't he played much in the first place? Apparently, because Greg Berhalter told him before the U.S. had played any games that he wouldn't play much in the World Cup. Why did Berhalter decide this? We don't know. Rain has proven his worth as a player skill-wise for Dortmund, his club team in Germany, and for the U.S., but he has gotten injured frequently. So maybe Berhalter wanted to protect him from injury, but this is the World Cup. That doesn't make much sense. What is interesting about this is that Burhalter was asked after the Wales match why he didn't put Gio in, and he said that he was dealing with some muscle soreness, and so instead he put Jordan Morris into the game as a sub. But later, Gio Reyna himself said that he was 100% fit for the Wales game. Huh. So it seemed strange at the time, but because we were, of course, in the middle of the World Cup, we didn't pay much attention to it. So now, We go after the World Cup for the U.S., after they were eliminated by the Netherlands in the round of 16. Berhalter, for some reason, decides it's a good idea to speak at a 
Leadership Summit, the HOW Institute for Society's Summit on Moral Leadership in New York City. Apparently, Burhalter's remarks at the summit were supposed to be off the record, but were later published publicly. And by the way, off the record, there were a ton of people there too. How are they supposed to be off the record? But either way, in that summit, he spoke about an issue concerning one player he had at the World Cup. I'm going to read to you what he said from that transcript. He said, quote, Every day you come into the locker room and you're checking the scales to see where guys are at, to see what issues can arise. You always have to be ready to hit issues head on, using your values as a filter. An example I can give you. In this last World Cup, we had a player that was clearly not meeting expectations on and off the field. One of 26 players, so it stood out. As a staff, we sat together for hours deliberating what we were going to do with this player. We were ready to book a plane ticket home. That's how extreme it was. And what it came down to was, we're going to have one more conversation with him. And part of the conversation was how we're going to behave from here out. There aren't going to be any more infractions. But the other thing we said to him was, you're going to have to apologize to the group because it's going to have to say why you're apologizing. It's going to have to go deeper than just, guys, I'm sorry. And I prepped the leadership group with this. I said, okay, this guy's going to apologize to you as a group, to the whole team. And what was fantastic in this whole thing is that after he apologized, they stood up one by one and said, listen, it hasn't been good enough. You haven't been meeting our expectations of a teammate and we want to see change. They really took ownership of that process. And from that day on, there were no issues with this player, unquote. So it was confirmed after a lot of social media speculation when that came out that that player was Gio Reyna. Reyna obviously was not pleased with the decision to the point where he was barely participating in training and threw his shin guards after not getting subbed on in the Wales match. And adding fuel to that fire during the World Cup was former U.S. international Eric Winalda, who has been known to cause a stir on Twitter. I'll just say that. But he said on Twitter that he had to console the father of Gio Reyna, Claudio, himself a former U.S. men's national team star. So all of this news comes out during and after the World Cup, thanks in part to Burhalter speaking at a leadership summit for whatever reason. He did that. This was while the World Cup was going on. The U.S. were out, but this was while the games were still going on. What? But in defense of Verhalter, The Athletic was apparently going to publish an article that was detailing the situation before these comments came out, but they had to delay the publishing of that article because prominent U.S. soccer journalist Grant Wall died while covering the World Cup in Qatar. So the day after Verhalter's speech was released, Gio Reyna went on Instagram to address the matter and apologize in a post. So there's a lot of stuff here, but if you think that's all of it, you would be sorely mistaken, because now we are learning about the aftermath of the World Cup and Burhalter's words. Obviously, the news that I just shared isn't that great, but what comes next is much worse. All of a sudden, last Wednesday, seven days ago, the 3rd, when we had a Xander's Facts flashback on this podcast, we find an unverified Twitter account that was just created this month, January 2023, with the name of Greg Berhalter, even spelled Greg correctly, with three Gs. It was eventually confirmed that the account is from the actual Greg Berhalter, the U.S. men's national team manager, who apparently wasn't on Twitter before this. The only tweet on that page is a two-page statement from Burhalter, and I'm not going to read all of it, but there are some important snippets here that I will read. So it says, quote, During the World Cup, an individual contacted U.S. soccer saying that they had information about me that would take me down, an apparent effort to leverage something very personal from long ago to bring about the end of my relationship with U.S. soccer. This is a difficult step to take, but my wife Rosalind and I want to clearly and directly share the truth. This is a story that belongs to us, but hopefully there are lessons from our relationship that can be valuable to others. In the fall of 1991, I met my soulmate. I had just turned 18 and was a freshman in college when I met Rosalind for the first time. We had been dating for four months when an incident happened between us that would shape the future of our relationship. One night, while out drinking at a local bar, Rosalind and I had a heated argument that continued outside. It became physical and I kicked her in the legs. 
There are zero excuses for my actions that night, and it was a shameful moment and one that I regret to this day. To this day, that type of behavior has never been repeated, unquote. He goes on to say that the two have eventually reconciled, they're married, and they've raised four children. So then, right after, we get that from the Twitter account of Greg Berhalter, apparently. U.S. Soccer releases a statement saying that they learned about the allegation on December 11th and immediately launched an independent investigation. And since Berhalter's contract with U.S. Soccer actually ended on January 1st, it was announced that Anthony Hudson, who was previously a manager for the New Zealand national team and MLS's Colorado Rapids, will be the interim manager for the U.S. men's national team's two friendlies that they have this month against Serbia and Colombia. Big game alert! But you all probably have the question that I had, and a lot of people had at the time. Who was this individual who attempted to blackmail the Burhalters over an incident that happened 31 years ago? We didn't know at the time, but we soon after learned who it was, and what a surprise it was. Tell me, tell me! Danielle Reina, the mother of Gio Reina and wife of Claudia Reina, said in a statement that she told U.S. Soccer Sporting Director Ernie Stewart about the past incident involving Burhalter and his now wife because she was frustrated by the comments Burhalter made at that leadership summit. She said in her statement, quote, I have known Ernie for years and consider him to be a close friend. I wanted to let him know that I was absolutely outraged and devastated that Gio had been put in such a terrible position and that I felt very personally betrayed by the actions of someone my family had considered a friend for decades, unquote. Claudio also issued a statement to The Athletic where he declared his support for his wife's comments and acknowledged that he sent messages containing frustration during the World Cup to Ernie Stewart and U.S. Men's National Team General Manager Brian McBride. ESPN reported that in those messages, he threatened to share allegations about Burhalter's past, but in that statement, Reina denied those allegations. So ESPN reported that U.S. soccer did not learn about the claims against Burhalter until December 11th on a call that included Claudio and Danielle Reina. What are you implying? So... This is obviously a case of over-obnoxious soccer mom and parents going too far. But there's something deeper here, because in the statement from Danielle, at the end she says, Someone my family had considered a friend for decades. Well, the Rainas and Burhalters have known each other and thought to have been good friends for decades. Because Greg and Claudio actually played youth soccer and high school soccer together before they were teammates on the U.S. men's national team from 1994 to 2006, including featuring on that 2002 World Cup squad that made the quarterfinals in Japan and South Korea. That was a fact. Danielle Reina and Rosalind Berhalter were four-year teammates at the University of North Carolina, with Greg also attending UNC and Claudio attending UVA, so they were both in the ACC. And Claudio served as Greg's best man at Burhalter's wedding. So, yeah, that's a lot to take in. And just my reactions to that, the Reynas were obviously trying to use their clout as U.S. soccer royalty. Claudio was captain of the U.S. men's national team, and he's been the sporting director of Austin FC and MLS since 2019, and he's done a really good job. But they were trying to use their clout to try and get Greg Berhalter punished, not because they hate him, but because they wouldn't feature their son, Gio, at the World Cup. Oh, boo-hoo! Now, we can all agree that that was a terrible decision. Gio should have played. He's one of their best players. But mommy and daddy are gonna go complain because our son didn't get to play. Oh, no. Our poor baby Gio. Nice try, buddy. But... We cannot support Greg Berhalter for many things regarding the U.S. men's national team, but what the Rainias did crossed a line. No one likes an obnoxious soccer parent. And yes, if you are an obnoxious soccer parent, I'm talking to you. The Rainias, if you're listening. But this might just be the worst case for it. The Rainia parents should never 
be involved with anything having to do with U.S. soccer ever again. Judge Xander. And Claudia should probably lose his job in Austin. That is a horrible look. Oh, our son's not playing. And guess what? Greg did this back in 1991. And you should know about it. So you should fire him. Like, really? But what this also shows is that U.S. soccer is not some big-time, big soccer federation operation. And it isn't run that way either. In order for U.S. soccer to actually make serious strides to improving their men's product, they need to change the way things are run. And that probably means shaking up who runs it, starting with Ernie Stewart. Like, we talk about U.S. soccer growing in America And this is the most important four years for soccer in the history of this country because we're hosting the World Cup in 2026 and we might be hosting Copa America in 2024. And our team is really good and we actually have a chance because of all the talent we have. But what's holding us back is U.S. soccer. Fact, Nugget. It's like this mom and pop shop. I mean, the actual headquarters of U.S. soccer in Chicago is at the U.S. Soccer House, which is just two mansions joined together. That's their headquarters. Like, former players and stars at that should obviously be able to have a say in what goes on, but not an overbearing and major influence. The fact that the Rainiers were able to voice their displeasure several times with Brian McBride and Ernie Stewart, the top guys at U.S. Soccer, is ridiculous. And do you know who was part of the group that hired Greg Berhalter at U.S. Soccer, who was the number two guy? to Ernie Stewart at U.S. Soccer when Greg Berhalter was hired? His brother, Jay Berhalter. And not a lot of people were impressed by the Greg Berhalter hire. So the fact is that the World Cup performance was perfectly acceptable to those inside U.S. Soccer, where the U.S. scored three, three total goals in four matches. The people who are running U.S. Soccer They either don't have a vision or they haven't shared it with us. And we need people to actually be in charge of soccer in this country who actually believe that the United States can win a World Cup. We can come into 2026 and say, oh, maybe we'll make the semifinals and that'd be cool. No, we need to have the mindset that we can win the thing in 2026 in this country when we have the best talent in the history of U.S. soccer. So there's that. Next up, I'm going to talk about Greg Berhalter, who absolutely should not be the manager of the U.S. men's national team any longer. First off, I probably would have been disappointed if he was brought back on as manager even before we learned about all this. I mean, there's been a lot of things about how Greg Berhalter's managed this team that many haven't agreed with, including myself. And including his tactics at times. The second half against Iran almost broke me. I almost had a heart attack. His man management. He fell out with prominent player John Brooks. He left Tim Ream off the squad for qualifying. Tim Ream saved his butt at the World Cup for how good he was. He favored Zach Steffen as keeper for almost up until all the World Cup, and that was not the right decision, as Matt Turner just laid out at the World Cup. And now this with Giorena, and how he has reacted to losses. There was a World Cup qualifier against Canada, and it happens on like the same day as the AFC championship game or whatever. And it happens up in Canada, and the U.S. lose 2-0. And Greg Berhalter says, we dominated that game. No, they absolutely did not dominate. They looked horrible. So there's all that. But now, there is no way, no way that he can come back. And it's not because of the incident that happened over three decades ago, that which should have been kept a private manner, by the way, and they reconciled and they love each other. So that's not an issue. The issue is that there's a rift between the players, some of the players, and Greg Berhalter, most notably Gio, and his willingness to speak about this situation right after it happened was absolutely not a good idea at all. Who advised him to do that? That was a horrible idea. And he still says he wants to remain his manager. I don't care what that investigation U.S. soccer finds, he should not be the manager. And if he is given a new contract for the World Cup in 2026, all hope should be lost with U.S. soccer. 
Like I tell you, U.S. soccer needs to have big aspirations. We need to come in here. We need to be interviewing managers and say, look, 2026, we have the best roster, the best talent we've ever had. And the World Cup is here. Can you win us the World Cup? And we need to be talking to the biggest guys in soccer. We don't need to be talking to Greg Berhalter, whose biggest managerial achievement before this was managing Columbus Crew of MLS for five years and getting to MLS Cup, which he didn't win. And then guess what happens after he goes to U.S. soccer? Columbus Crew and MLS Cup. And from what we've seen under Greg Berhalter, it hasn't been bad. There have been some bad moments, but overall it's been fine. But we should be doing better than fine. Like, nothing against Greg Berhalter. I'm sure he's a very nice person, but we need to have bigger aspirations as a soccer country. And now there is a report that U.S. soccer did reach out to French legend and former Real Madrid manager Zinedine Zidane. Oof! Zinedine Zidane. Zinedine Zidane. And he declined, which is actually a good sign because apparently they're actually reaching out to prominent managers in Europe, which is what we should be doing. But we'll see. We'll see what U.S. soccer decides to do with the position open, because that'll be, that'll be a big thing. And then there's 20-year-old Gio Reyna. Does he deserve to be punished for his parents' actions? Absolutely not. Now, if it comes out that he played a part there, then that's totally something different. But even though he's young... Gio, as we've seen, is very emotional. We've seen it on the field when he gets upset with his teammates and now off the field. He even admitted so in his Instagram apology post. But that probably comes from him going through childhood and his parents getting everything right for him. Which, do you really think this is the first time they've tried to do that for him? But the fact is, he didn't come out of that and become a crappy soccer player. He is extremely talented, and his emotions at a young age, 20, I know something about that, shouldn't dictate whether or not he sees the field in the future. Now, U.S. soccer really has a decision to make. It's basically Gio or Greg. And in my eyes, the choice is clear, because if you choose Greg, you aren't just choosing against Gio, but a whole lot of players who back Gio are just like him. We really have the most talent we've ever had in soccer, in this country. But it's not going to matter if U.S. soccer doesn't run a competent organization. Whoever they hire as the next manager is going to show whether they are or they aren't. And hopefully we'll find that out soon, in the next few months or so. So there's basically everything you need to know about the latest drama surrounding U.S. soccer. And it really doesn't paint the Reyes, Greg Berhalter, or U.S. soccer in a good light overall. But you know who else have controversies like this surrounding their federations? Major soccer countries. So I will officially declare that the United States has made it as a major soccer nation because one of the big things about being a major soccer nation is you need to have controversy with your national team. Stuff like this. And here we go. We've made it, everyone. Congrats. We're here. How about that? We are officially a major soccer nation. I'm declaring it. It's a Xander's fact. There you go. So that's basically all the facts I've got for U.S. soccer, for all that stuff that happened over the last week and month or so, and all the stuff that happened with the U.S. house over the last week or so. And that's all the facts I've got for this week's edition of the podcast, episode 89. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember, if you liked all the facts that we had on this week's edition, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 89, do it. And then you can delete it the next day and you can re-download it. Just set an alarm, whatever. Rate and review. Then check out all our socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I'm on all those. Zaner's Facts, that's Zaner with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. Spread the facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts, about Xander's Facts on YouTube, and about all the Xander's Facts links on the Xander's Facts link tree, which has the link for xandersfacts.com, which includes the Xander's Facts shop. Get your facts swag at xandersfacts.com. So that's it for episode 89. Episode 90 is coming up next week. And of course, I have a bunch of facts for you. So tune into episode 90. 
next week. So that is it. That is a wrap on episode 89 of the Zeters Facts Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And the Zeters Facts Podcast rolls on with episode 90 next week. Z-A-N-D-E-R-S-F-A-C-T-S dot com.